Good morning. Uh, if you are a guest with us, I echo the video that Ben uh, just played for us. Um, I am glad that you're here this morning, and uh, we are going to open God's Word. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Um, and let me just welcome you. Uh, there's a couple things about being here that I, I would want you to know about us. One, uh, our desire really is to get to know you, and we want to be accessible um, and so you can catch us. If you have questions about something you want to know about getting plugged in or learn more about the church, you can just come up and grab anybody that's on staff. We're going to be walking around. We don't go into some room behind the stage where you can't get to, like, we're going to be walking around and just catch us and ask us questions. We want to get connected. Here's the other piece of that though. We'll probably disappoint you at some point. Uh, welcome to new hope. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's not our goal. We're not trying to do that, but we're willing to say, Hey, we're sorry about that. We're trying to learn. We're trying to grow. Uh, we really want you to be able to feel like you can get connected here at the church and make this place your church home. So 1 Corinthians 14, let me pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, we thank you for the access that we have to your word. And as we come before you this morning to hear from your word, I pray that you would speak clearly to us. God, thank you for using your word to edify, challenge and call us to different places in life. And I pray that we're receptive to that this morning. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon is a famous preacher uh, from uh, a long time ago. And he is uh, known for telling this story about a gardener that had this incredible garden and lived in a really great kingdom ruled by a really great king. And one day, this garden produced a carrot that blew this guy away. It was an enormous, giant carrot, the biggest carrot he'd ever seen in his life. And as soon as he uh, harvested this carrot, his first thought was, I want to not keep this for myself. I want to honor my king and bring the gift that the land produced and honor this great king. And so that's what he does. The next day, he finds himself in the palace and he approaches the king and he bows down before the king and he says, you are a great king. And I brought my gift to you. This is the greatest carrot my land has ever produced, and I just want you to have this gift. Well, the king, who had a good read on his people, could tell that this man was being very genuine. He was being very sincere. There was no flattery in the presentation, which made him eager to want to honor uh, this person and their gift. He just really wanted to honor them. And so he says, hey, thank you so much for this great gift. I can see that you're genuine, and I'm so inspired by your generosity and your desire to honor the throne. You must work the land really well. You must have integrity to, to work this land the way you do. And so uh, the thing is, I own all the land next to your land. And I want to give that land to you as a gift because of the way that you've treated the land that you have. And so now you can plant all the gardens to your heart's desire and you can harvest all the carrots that you want to harvest. But here's the catch. From now on, anything that your land produces, I want you to keep it for yourself. See, this guy had come before the king, and he had just genuinely wanted to offer him a gift for being such a great king, and he wanted to offer him this generosity, and he walked away more blessed than he ever could have imagined. Well, in the palace that day was another person who overheard this entire interaction, and he thought to himself, he's a wealthy man who had a lot of money and a desire to have more money, and he thought to himself, if this little peasant gave a carrot and got 40 acres of prime real estate, imagine what's going to happen tomorrow when I show up with an even greater gift for this king. 
And so the next day, he comes into the palace, and he brings with him this black stallion, this incredible horse, and he brings it in there, having trained this horse. And he doesn't just come in before the king. No, he comes in, and he parades around the palace so everybody can see how incredible this stallion is that he's going to offer to his king. And then he comes before the king, and he bows low before the king, and, and he says, King, you are the greatest king of all. And I have brought you the greatest stallion I have ever trained, and this is a gift that I want to bring to you to honor the greatness of your throne. Well, the king wasn't fooled. He could read right through this guy's hypocrisy. And so he stands up and he grabs the reins from the stallion. He says, thank you. And he walks out of the room. <laughs> well, the next day, this guy's just completely thrown off by that. And so he thinks, I got to know what's going on. So the next day he returns to the palace and he comes before the king and he says, king, I, I, I just want to understand something. This peasant comes before you and he brings you a carrot and you give him 40 acres of land as a gift. I come before you with a far greater gift that cost me a lot more than that carrot cost that, that little gardener and you let me walk away with nothing. I don't understand what's going on. And the king replies to him, it's actually quite simple. I can trust his heart. I can't trust yours. You see, the man with the garden was giving to me you're only giving to yourself. The man brought me the carrot and he came into the palace to honor his king, but you come into the palace only to honor yourself and try to work a bargain before your king. He came with a gift, a genuine gift, but you come seeking your own advantage. You come seeking only what you want. See, that man with the garden loves me, but you only love yourself. It's a powerful story. And it begs the question, when you hear a story like that, maybe it does this for you the way it does for me. I sit back and I reflect on a story like that, and I think to myself, why do I do what I do? Like, really, when I examine all the different areas of my life, the question is, like, why do I do what I do? Like, what is my motivation? Why do I make the decisions that I make? Why do I uh, approach certain things a certain way? Why do I do what I do? And as we've studied 1 Corinthians this year, this has been quite a challenging sermon series, We've been walking through this book slowly all year, and as, as many different things that we've learned, okay? It's been quite a challenging thing uh, to walk through all the different things that this book brings up and, and to just learn as a church and grow. But one of the things for me that's popped up over and over and over again is that question. Why do we do what we do? Like, why do we do it? What is the motivation behind what we're doing? And I can see this every time Paul brings up another issue with this church. If you've tracked with us through this letter, you've seen it. Each time he, he comes up against the struggle that this followers of Jesus, this group of followers of Jesus is having, his goal is simple. He wants them to see this issue that they're having and take the gospel, the lens of the gospel, and put the lens on so now you see it through what Jesus desires for us. And each time he's asking, why do you do what you do? I mean, early on, why why are you creating divisions among the church? I mean, I can just hear it coming off the pages. Why are you creating divisions in the church? I mean, really, why would you divide from one another, brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would you create these quarrels and these issues between one another? Are you, are you really doing that? Are you creating a division in the church really because you're pursuing the heart of your king? Or are you trying to build your own kingdom? Why is it that you continue to fall back into sexual sins? to be trapped by the bondage of these sexual sins, to give in to these desires that lead you to emptiness? Why do you keep doing that? Are you, are you really doing that because your life is focused on the one who's the king over your life? Why is it that we continue to favor the wealthy over the poor? Why is it 
Paul's asking this church in Corinth, why is it that the wealthy people always have the advantage in your church over the poor people? Why is that? Why would you do that? Is that really because when you gather together as a church, you're focused on Jesus or are you just focused on yourself? Why is it that when it comes to spiritual gifts, gifts that God so freely gives to you that you don't deserve, these gifts that the Holy Spirit uh, works inside of you, why is it that when you're gifted, you draw all the attention to the gift itself? Why is it that you elevate certain gifts over other gifts? Is it because when you gather together as a church, Jesus is on the forefront of your mind? Is it because Jesus has captured your attention and your affection? Or is it because when you gather together, you want to be heard? You want to be seen and you want to be the most important. See, this is what Paul is addressing as he talks to this church. He's simply sitting back and saying to them, why do you do what you do? Like, where's your heart really in the middle of this? What is your heart really focused on when it comes to gathering together as a body of believers? What is the point? Why do you do what you do? See, the church in Corinth really struggled with this one. It was easy for them to kind of slip into this pattern of making church about what they wanted. See, when they gathered together, it was about what can I get out of this? What do I like? What do I not like? How am I going to be served? And Paul's trying to redirect the way they see everything. And this week is we're going to pick up right where we left off. We left off in chapter 14, verse 25. We're going to pick up in chapter 14, verse 26 this morning as he kind of hones in on this idea of why do you do what you do? 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 26, Paul writes these words. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So he starts out this next section of his discussion explaining to them, every single person has something to offer in the life of the church. Everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been baptized into Christ, if the Holy Spirit is alive in you, you are prepared, fully prepared to offer something to the body of Christ. You have been given a gift. He says everybody. So everybody that comes together has a role to play in the life of a church family. Every person contributes to it. He says, but the motivation behind it, why you do that, why you contribute, why you figure out where God is leading you and you come in and you serve other people. The reason you do that, the purpose of the gifts that he gives is that the church may be built up. So when we come together as a church, when we attend church as believers, our primary thought is not, when I pull into the parking lot, is not, I wonder what I'm going to like today. And when we leave, the first conversation we have is, what did you get out of that? What did you like out of it? But instead, Paul is saying, you, your focus with your life should be the building up of the believers. And so when you leave, it's who should we serve this next week? What needs came about as you talked to your brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we use our life to build them up? Why do you do? Why do you do what you do? Here in the city of Corinth, they were struggling with it. They had turned these things into a status symbol. Like we said last week, they had taken particularly the, the gift of speaking in tongues, a gift that we defined as a learned language, an actual human spoken language that was unknown to the one who was speaking it. They were not trained, and God used it to advance the gospel and build up the church. It was not this heavenly dialect where people just kind of let loose and went free. He defined it, and now he's saying when it comes to using that gift, why is it that you've elevated that gift to be a sign of spiritual maturity? As though if you don't have that gift, you're not spiritually mature. Paul's saying, don't do that. Because the whole point of having that gift along with every other gift is that you might use it to help other people. So the point's not the gift. The point is the way the gift is being used. 
Verse 27, he continues to go in the midst of this church who when everybody got together, nobody could speak because everybody was trying to speak. And he continues in verse 27, specific to their context. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak at one time and someone must interpret it. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Again, he just right there in that little passage gives us the why. Why do you do what you do? Well, it's so that everyone, not so everyone has a voice all at the same time, though everyone should have an opportunity at some point to speak. It's not so that everybody can exercise their gift and gain some sort of attention, influence, uh, or some sort of control over something. That's not the point. He said the purpose is so that everybody can be instructed and encouraged. That's the purpose. Now, this looked different in their setting. And that day, the church would gather in homes. They would gather in houses, not in buildings like this. That was their particular context. And a home may have looked something like this. This is an idea of one of the homes during that day. So a picture, it's not exactly what the church, the house in Corinth, but it gives you the general idea. You'd have living quarters and other rooms, storage, different things around the outside. But right there in the middle is where I want you to bring your attention, where it says kitchen and bathroom. Right there in the middle, there's a picture of a courtyard, an open area. And this is where the church would come in and gather. And when the church came in and they would gather together, they would have this issue that was taking place in the churches in Corinth, the homes in Corinth where the church would gather, where everybody's trying to use their gift all at one time, and it was creating what we would call chaos. And the Apostle Paul is saying, enough is enough. Let me give you, in your particular setting, some instruction. Not everybody should speak at the same time. If one person exercises their gift, wait, the next person, why? Because you're not doing this so that everybody comes together and gets to say, look at me, look at what I can do. You're doing this because your attention, your affection, your focus is to make much of Jesus in the lives of the people that are around you. So when you come together, if you have something to contribute, you do so with the end goal of making sure that everyone around you is now closer to Jesus because you used your gift. That looks a little different in our setting, right? In our setting, we're gathering in this particular moment like this. Now, we have settings like that. And again, I'm not doing this to make a plug for discipleship groups. Because there's other settings where an environment like what they were experiencing can take place in the life of a church. It can happen when a group of believers just get together at someone's home for dinner. It can happen in a discipleship group. Though, again, that's not the only way. Though, I do think you should be in a discipleship group. (laughs) But it also happens at church events at dinners that the church puts on. It happens in all kinds of classrooms, different settings where different people have an opportunity to contribute. And this particular setting where somebody is explaining what the word of God says, that's not the most appropriate setting for a gift or or for that type of conversation to take place. I have learned in my own experience in in, in 15 years of, 16 years of uh, ministry that open mics in rooms like this don't lead to a distraction-free environment. Anybody got anything to say? And, and it just becomes this place where everybody wants the voice to be heard, and it's an easy way to distract other people from focusing on what the Word of God says. On the flip side, that's why you can't just have one person preach. Here at New Hope, you've got multiple people that you're going to hear preach. These multiple people are in, in this particular setting. You've got multiple teachers. You're going to hear from other people in a service to get up and share something and lead. Why? Because everybody has something to contribute. But not everybody's gift to contribute happens in this particular room It happens in the life of the church. And Paul is saying, and when that takes place, the purpose of all those gifts and all that contribution happening 
is that everybody might be edified, instructed, and encouraged. Verse 32, he continues. He says, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. This is a pretty key verse. We're going to come back to it here in just a couple minutes. But what he does tell us here is this. When the Holy Spirit's alive in you, one of the gifts that God does give every believer, every follower of Jesus, is the ability to control yourself. So the idea that the Holy Spirit would manifest itself in chaos or a lack of control or people going crazy and not controlling themselves or being lost in some emotion is foreign to the text. It doesn't fit. Paul says, no, the Spirit, you have the ability to control yourself. And as you control yourself, again, you ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it to honor my king? Is it to bring a gift before my king? Or is it to honor myself and to build myself up? He says, because God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Hold on to that one. Now we get to the the really fun verses that I'm sure you read ahead and can't wait for the preacher to struggle through. Verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. Such a fun sermon series. Uh, They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow, that comes off pretty rough. I want to refer you back, and I promise you this is not a cop-out, but it is not the purpose of this particular context. Back to the sermon we preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we clearly made the case for, as we've studied the Bible, the conclusion we've come to about the role of men and women in the church. And we discussed this particular passage within that context. But in this particular context, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speaking to something that was taking place in the church at Corinth, and he's trying to get them to come back to his main point, which is keep order. There has to be order when the church meets, because order eliminates distractions and allows people to focus on Jesus. It allows people to be edified and encouraged and continue to grow. It builds the body up. And one of the things that was distracting them was what was taking place with women in the church at that time. Now, we, we take a certain, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 11, not a cop out, go back, listen to that sermon. If you have questions, you email ryan at newhopecc.net. <laughs> All right? Verse 36, he continues. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people that it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Hard questions. Pointing them back to that original question we've been asking, why do you do what you do? Like, are you doing this because you want to be the authority? Did you, do you think the word of God originated with you? And if you have a spiritual gift, are you clearly saying that uh, the person, the apostle Paul, who's in the role of articulating the word of God to the people, are you, you have to submit yourself to his authority is what he's saying. Like, if you think that you're going to usurp what I'm saying to you, then you too will be silenced. There are consequences to not answering that question properly. Why do you do what you do? So you got to get that part in check. What is my motivation? Where is my heart? Why am I doing this? Why am I living this way? Why do I make these decisions? What is my motivation? Verse 39, he says, Therefore, when you get that part of your life in check, my brothers and sisters, you should be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Again, that's a hard passage to, to understand. It's a really fascinating word that the Apostle Paul uses there for orderly. It's the Greek word taxis, and it means to be disciplined in a fixed succession. 
It appears another time in your New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul tells the church there, he says, For though I am absent with you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined, or taxi, that's our word, that you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. He's saying this word, when you understand it, is I do this to get here. When Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, he says, I am really excited and I'm really glad to hear of how disciplined your spiritual life is, how orderly it is, how you put the proper restrictions in your life to grow and mature spiritually, and because of that, how firm you're standing in difficult times. When the storms come, you stand firm. Why? Because your spiritual life is disciplined and intentional and has order to it. You do this so that you get here. Now, if we understand that within the church, our focus when we gather together is to turn our affection and attention to Jesus. So what do we do? He says, you have to have order in the church gathering. It's not order for order's sake, because if we just did order for order's sake, it would be control hungry, and it would only be done the way one person or two people wanted things to be done. It would not look like a church family. It would not be enjoyed. But to remove it, think about that, which we struggle with this idea of freedom. We think that freedom oftentimes is the absence of restrictions. If we could remove restrictions, we're going to be free. I don't need to be under your rule. I don't need to follow rules. I wish there was no rules because if I could just be free to do whatever I want, all of a sudden I'd, I would not have these restrictions and I would experience real freedom and it would be enjoyable. The problem is the absence of restrictions altogether doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to chaos. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, let me use the example of uh, the lack of weight or gravity. If you were to remove gravity from a situation, this law or the order of gravity, the discipline of gravity, sounds like it would be pretty fun. Weightlessness, to be able to float around, right? It's something that astronauts get to experience, or maybe put all of your other opinions aside just for a moment, just go with my illustration. You saw the founder of Amazon go to space recently, and maybe you saw something like uh, you'll see in this video here, you'll see floating around. And I see that, and I think, hey, that looks like it would be a lot of fun. If you removed gravity and I could float around, like who doesn't like it? Who doesn't like sitting in a pool on a hot day or a body of water and you're sitting back and the sun's shining down and it's comfortable and you're just kind of floating there? Who wouldn't want to float around like a bird and just fly around and just, and not have, it would be incredible. The problem is we think, man, if I could just remove gravity and the G-force that holds me down to earth, I would experience freedom. But that freedom, the problem is our bodies. Human bodies weren't created to withstand this. In fact, it does more harm. If you knew this, the longer that you're in a weightless environment, the more muscle mass and bone density you lose. It just begins to evaporate. There's an experiment done where a group of people went for three consecutive weeks in a weightless environment. When the experiment was done, those who were putting on the experiment asked the participants this question. What was it like when you got back on solid ground and began to walk around? And without fail, every single one of them said, like, said it felt like a vice grip was put on my body. We weren't created to float. We were created to run, to walk, to jump, to experience the freedom and the peace that comes from the presence of the proper restrictions gravity. See, freedom, as Tim Keller says, is not the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the proper restrictions. Think about it like a city block in downtown Indianapolis. My first experience with this city, uh, driving in, in downtown Indianapolis, happened the night before my wedding. 
Okay? Before my, my wife and I got married, if you're new to the church here, my father-in-law uh, was the preacher here for 30 years. He's still on staff, still preaches with us. Um, so my wife grew up here, and so we got married right here in this room. And so the night before, I had friends who also were not from Indianapolis. And if you were around here back then, before of growth happened around here, it was New Hope and cornfields. <laughs> and that was it. And you're like, the glory days. I'm like, yeah, Chick-fil-A's pretty great, all right? <laughs> okay. So that's what it was like. And so the night before the wedding, I get my friends who weren't from here, groomsmen, and we get in a rented minivan, living large. And we are going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings to watch the NBA playoffs and just hang out, laugh, and, and have fun. And so someone pointed us to the Buffalo Wild Wings that was downtown at the time because there was not another one close. And so like, all right, well, we're going to drive. So we begin to drive. Don't know where we're going. Did not have Google Maps or, hey, Siri, like none of that. We just had basic smartphones. It wasn't like, I don't even know if they were smartphones at the time. So you're just driving down there. When all of a sudden, my good friend Heath says, hey, man, I don't want to alert you but none of the streetlights are facing us. And so we're driving in downtown Indianapolis because I wasn't used to those roads. Like all the, this whole road, only one way, what? So I'm driving in this van with everybody that was a part of the wedding. And then when we're just driving, like, yep. He's like, we need to look up. And sure enough, a whole group of cars are coming. We had to cut off on a side road. It was awesome. And when it comes to a city block, pedestrians, drivers, they need to know how to get around a downtown area. They need to know if a road is one way or two directional. Maybe they should already know that. Whether there are checkpoints, stop signs, streetlights, speed limits, school zones. If you removed all of those restrictions, if you removed all of those laws, if you removed all of that order, you would have gridlock. Nobody would know where to go. And so the freedom of enjoying the downtown area would go away the moment you pulled all the restrictions out of it. Now, let's say all you had was restrictions and everything was so intense and every little movement you made, then you'd have a military state. And sure, the, the roads would work well and the city would move well and everything would be used the way it's supposed to be used, but nobody would be down there enjoying it. Nobody would enjoy being in that particular environment. And the same thing is true in the church. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. You remove all order, all leadership, all restrictions for the sake of freedom for everybody. You don't have freedom. You have chaos. How do we know that? Because he just got done telling us, one, God is a God of order. He desires order, but Why? Why do we do what we do? Why have order? Why is it have an order of service and certain people get up to speak at a certain time? Why is it? He says, because he's a God of peace. He desires peace for his people. So we pursue order for that reason. Now, we also don't want to only have order where every, every single move anyone makes in the life of a church is directed by one person or one group of people. Why? Because, yeah, sure, maybe things function well in the organization, but guess what? We're not an organization. We're a church family. We're a church family. Multiple voices need to be heard. People need to not just experience order. They need to experience what comes from having order and direction and the proper restrictions in place. It's the peace of God. And so we, we don't restrict the movement of the spirit, but we don't overindulge to the point where we lose control and there's chaos. So let me think about it this way. If, you, if, we, if we just removed it altogether, or if our goal was to experience the freedom of saying, hey, I don't like anyone ever saying anything that we need to do, the idea of having order in church, then to me, it's no wonder that we jump from church to church. To me, it's no wonder that when we get into uh, our vehicles, we ask, what did I get out of that? What did you get out of that? Did we like that or did we dislike that? 
to me, it's no wonder that one of the fewest questions that we would ask in, if that's where our heart's at, if that's why we do what we do, then it's one of the fewest questions that we're going to ask out loud to our family members and friends is, who can we serve? How can we build up the body of Christ? Instead, it would be, what can we get? Who should be serving us? I can't believe they didn't do that for us. Let me summarize this way. Just two, two big points. As we pull back from this passage, we say, okay, what are, what are we to learn from 1 Corinthians 14, the second part, and the idea of why we do what we do? Two quick things. The first one is this. Our gatherings as a church, there is order and leadership to them. And, and the reason for it, the why do we do what we do, is to eliminate distractions so we can turn our affection and attention to Jesus. We want everyone to focus on him. So you don't want to overdo the rules because they become a distraction in and of themselves. You want to find that sweet spot where the right people who the church desires to lead are leading so that we have a focus put on Jesus. Ben works really hard to put the order of service together on Sunday mornings. That old, like, I thought you guys only worked one day a week. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. It's getting old, all right? (laughs) I'm kidding. You can still joke about it. But we work really hard. It's not just us. It's all kinds of people in the church that put their heart and soul into this place. Why? Because you want to know, why do I do what I do? I want to serve so that everyone around me can be built up and edified and make much of Jesus. That's the sign of spiritual maturity, not the presence of certain gifts. See, the sign of spiritual maturity in the life of a Christian is not what gift do I have, but how's that gift being used? It's a completely different focus. The second thing is this. When we gather... We should be seeking ways to build one another up. What is your first thought when you wake up in the morning? What's your first thought when you wake up on a Sunday morning before you come to church? What about when you pull into the parking lot? Is it, man, I can't wait to get in there and see people and encourage them, or I hope I like the sermon today. Hope Ben plays the music I want. What's your first thought when you come into this room to gather Is it, oh, they changed the chairs. (laughs) Some of you are like, wait, they changed the chairs. (laughs) Is that it? Like, oh, they changed the chair. Like, they changed it. Or is it, man, I'm here. Things are happening. The church is growing. Who do we serve? What's your conversation like when you get in your car after you're here? This is not a cop-out either. Some of you are like, he's just putting all kinds of protections around critiquing that sermon, isn't he? That's not the goal. (laughs) Critique it all you want. But the point is, what kind of conversations are you having in the car on your way home? Like, hey, who, who did we see that we could serve and love and care for? Tim Keller wrote this really great little book. I'd recommend it to all of you. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He makes a great case for this mentality that we're talking about today. Really check in. Why do I do what I do? Like, what's my motivation here? he says these words in it. He says, the truly gospel humble person, the person who has the right lenses on and they're seen through the lens of the gospel and it's creating a humility in their life is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Right now you're thinking about your toes. Before I said that, none of you were thinking about your toes. The toes just work. Likewise, the gospel humbled person, their ego just works. Neither of them draws attention to itself. It's the idea that I don't need this to be about me. When I talk about the gifts that God has given to me, if I ever even talk about them, the whole purpose is how can you use this? Like, how can we use this to help other people? So my question for you is this, not just why do you do what you do, but when you do what you do, are you doing it to honor your king? 
I mean, are you really doing it to honor your king? The conversations you're having, the critiques you're offering, the questions you're asking, the comments you're contributing, are they to honor your king or to build your own kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for humbling us from time to time and reminding us of how easy it can be for us to slip into a place of self-centeredness, to begin to revolve our ideas and thoughts around our church family, around what we want and desire and what we think should be the case. And whether that's people that work here or people that attend here, people that serve in leadership or people that are just getting to know this place, Father, we all have a role to play. And that role is no more important than anyone else's role. And so would you help us to see through the work of your spirit in our life, would you help us to focus and bring our attention to asking better questions of our own hearts? It's not just seeking to be filled up, but to seek to look around and notice the needs and notice the way that our gifts could be used to meet needs, to be a source of encouragement, great encouragement to the body of Christ, to build up the church, to exhaust ourselves honoring our king and not building our own kingdoms. Father, we thank you that Jesus really is reason for everything that we're doing. Would you help us stay focused and fix our eyes upon him? And we ask you for this in his name and all God's people said.